The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. Lord God, as we come to your word this morning, we pray, God, that you would make our hearts receptive. Give us ears to hear, Lord, hearts to love, and hands to practice, Lord. Let us put into action what you call us to in your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Many of you are probably familiar with the song by Frank Sinatra entitled Love and Marriage. It starts out by saying, it's hard for me to read a song. And I know my voice isn't the best, but it goes like this. Love and marriage. You can join in so you don't hear me so much. (laughs) Love and marriage go together like a... See, your voice isn't that good either, but that's all right. (laughs) This I tell you, brother, you can't have one without thee. It makes marriage sound so easy, doesn't it? All you got to do is love and the marriage is going to be great. So says Frank Sinatra, who was married four times (laughs) and had several different lovers. You know, marriage is so easy in theory. And I think all of us are marriage experts until, of course, we get married, right? And then we know that marriage is not so easy. It's difficult in practice. Growing up, my parents, near the end of their marriage, it started to get very volatile. And I tried to referee these arguments and finally figured out that it was no good. And so I would go to my friend's house Jacobs or Brent's and their, their parents got along. And so it was nice to go over there. And I remember even after college writing to Brent's parents and saying, thank you for being a great example of what marriage is supposed to be like. And I wrote this big, long letter thanking them and I received nothing in return. And then several years later saw on Facebook that Brent's parents were divorced. Jacob's parents were divorced. My parents were divorced. Marriage is so easy in theory. But it is so very difficult in practice. In 2014, the Huffington Post reported that there's a steady decline of divorces. And that might seem like an encouragement at first, but many of the responses pointed out things like people aren't getting married anymore. People are just cohabitating. One guy actually said, he goes, don't forget that divorce destroys a man's wealth. So who in their right minds would marry these days? One marriage and you are done for. So financially, marriage doesn't make sense. Marriage is for fools. You know, we have been trying to to do marriage our way for a long time. And it hasn't worked. It either ends in divorce or it ends in maybe less public ways when husband and wife are simply cohabitating in a house and there's no real relationship. And so maybe it is time for us to actually question how we do marriage. Maybe it's time for us to actually ask God, how are we supposed to do marriage Lord? And I must warn you that God's way of doing marriage is not popular. It is not politically correct. As a matter of fact, God's way of doing marriage is outright offensive to many people in our culture. 
but it's so crazy, it might just work. (laughs) God's way of marriage is a strange way to us, but it is a good way. It is the best way. It is the most joyful, God-glorifying way there is to do marriage. And so that's what we're going to look at today. If you would please open up to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 7. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. Chad can bring you one. Thank you, Chad, for volunteering. Anybody, not, it's okay if you don't have one. Just slip your hand up. Chad can bring you one. You'll make sure you want to have a Bible this morning. As we look at this passage in 1 Peter chapter 3, um, whether you are single or married, we come today not as experts in marriage, but as students of marriage, asking God to help us understand how to do marriage his way. Because quite frankly, our way doesn't work. And so let's read together 1 Peter chapter 3. It's page 1015 in the Red Bible, page 1316 in the Children's Bible. And we're going to read verses 1 through 7. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Likewise, wives... Be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy woman who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that our marriages are broken, that even the best marriages are not perfect marriages. And so God, we come today, humble our hearts to hear what you would have to teach us, Lord. God, I pray for those in this room that are single, that as they hear these words, they would look for a spouse that has these same things in mind, that has these same qualities that you call us to. Be with us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So, verse 1 says, Wives, be subject or submissive to your own husbands. Verse 6, Sarah is commended because Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Verse 7, encourages husbands to show honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. I've asked many people if they would like to preach in my place this week. These are difficult words to hear. At first reading, they might be extremely offensive to you. And I think they're extremely offensive for two reasons. One reason is because we misunderstand them. We just simply read them with our cultural context and our own baggage in mind. And we read them and they just evoke very negative things in our hearts. The other reason is because of pride. Because we want to do it our way. We want to do marriage our way. We don't have to have to sacrifice anything to make marriage work. But we must remember that this is God's word. It is our authority. And we don't come to God's word to critique it or to change it, but to submit ourselves to it. 
for God's glory and for our good. And so my hope today is as we look through this passage that God would give us first clarity, that we would be able to understand what these hard things mean in their rightful context. And second, humility, to conquer our pride, to forsake our way of doing marriage and to submit ourselves to God's divine design for marriage. And so we're going to look at this by looking at the holy calling of a wife and the holy calling of a husband. First, the holy calling of a wife. Verse one again says, likewise, wives, be subject or submit yourselves to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. One calling of a wife is to submit to her husband. Now, I know, again, this word submission has a lot of negative connotations to it. It makes many of us, both women and men, very uncomfortable to read this passage. For many of us, this command for wives to submit seems absolutely barbaric. But when this word submit is applied in the context of marriage, it is not to be applied in sinful ways, not to promote selfishness or abuse or sexism or sin. And when Submission is misused in those ways. It is something we should hate. Whatever definition of submission that you hate so much, God probably hates that definition too. And so I want God to redefine for us what beautiful, glorious submission is. Okay, And the way I want to do this is first by talking about what submission is not and then what submission is. First, what submission is not. Biblical submission is not an isolated command for women. If you notice, verse 1 starts with likewise. And the reason is, is because this isn't a big passage about submission. Peter is talking about what it looks like to live for the Lord by submitting to God-ordained authorities. And so he talks about submitting to government authorities. He talks about submitting to your employer. Now he's talking about submission within the context of marriage. And so submission is something that all of us, without exception, are called to do. Not only to the Lord, but also the human authorities in our life. And so submission is not isolated command for women. Biblical submission is also not an assessment of value or intelligence or capabilities. You know, we so often associate position with value, but God never does that. In the Trinity, Jesus submits his will to the will of the Father, as we'll look at later. And yet he is no less God. And so if submission is a critique or a commentary on value, then the entire Trinity falls apart. Submission is not a declaration of cultural roles. You know, it is right that a wife would primarily love her husband and love her children and see them as her primary ministry. The same is true of the husband, to love his wife and love his kids well. But submission does not mean that wives have to do the dishes, that they have to stay at home, that they have to be with the kids all day. Matter of fact, when we look in Proverbs 31, we read about an excellent wife, an excellent wife who loves her husband and loves her children, but is also an entrepreneur, a small business owner, runs her own company. And so it's not a declaration of cultural roles. Submission also is not a command for the unconditional compliance of women. Peter is writing to women who have become Christians and their husbands have not become Christians. In the era that they were in, it was normal that a woman would adopt the religion of her husband, whatever religion that would be. And Peter is not telling them to adopt that religion, to comply with everything he demands. 
rather calls them to win her husband to Christ. And so it's not universal compliance. If a husband calls a wife to sin, she has to submit first and foremost to her ultimate authority, the Lord. Fifth, and there's six of these. Submission is not a command for the silence of women. Let me look at verse one with you again. It says, wives be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. Now, at first, this reading, if you read it very quickly and kind of superficially, it sounds like wives are not supposed to speak, but that is not the context at all. Peter is talking to wives who have trusted in Christ and their husbands have not. He is talking to women whose husbands have heard the gospel, as it says there, but do not obey the word. They have not submitted their lives to the gospel. They've already heard it. And so he is telling them, you do not need to nag them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Rather, you need to show it is authentic with your life. And so this is not a calling for women to be silent. It is right and it is good for women to practice Matthew 18 with their husbands, to come to them, to confront them lovingly in the, about their sin. It's right for them to vocalize their, their thoughts and their opinions on big decisions being made in the household. Finally, submission is not a command that means nothing. I think many in today's culture would say this no longer applies to us. You know, we are more advanced. And yet in Peter's day, they had the same issues we have today. That's why he's writing this command. It's so interesting in Ephesians 5, which talks about spirit-filled Christians and talks about what does it mean to be a spirit-filled Christian? It gives one verse to saying a spirit-filled Christian is one who sings songs both publicly and privately. It gives one verse to saying that a spirit-filled Christian is one who gives thanks to God. And then it gives not just one verse or two verses, but it gives 23 verses describing how a spirit-filled Christian submits. Maybe you've heard the term a spirit-filled Christian. I think we might need a new definition. A spirit-filled Christian is the one who submits to the Lord, but also to the human authorities that God has placed over us. And so that is what biblical submission is not. And I'm sure there are many more things we could say. But what is submission then? If it doesn't mean nothing, it must mean something. And let me start with a definition. Submission is respecting another's God-given authority for God's glory and our good. Submission is respecting another's God-given authority for God's glory and our good. This word submit is inseparably linked to the word respect. That's why in verse 3, Peter says that wives should be respectful. Now, if you're here and you're married, wives, you may be thinking, but my husband is not respectful. My husband is sometimes selfish, sometimes lazy, sometimes mean. He does sinful things. He does dirty things. But God is not calling you to respect your husband for what he does. He's calling you to respect your husband for the position that God has placed him in the family. You do not, you're not called to respect sinful actions, but you're called to respect your husband as one put there, a gift from God. 
In verses 5 through 6, Peter actually goes into an illustration of what submission and respect look like linked together in the story of Abraham and Sarah. And if you know anything about Abraham, you probably know that he's a father in the faith, which is very commendable. But what the children's Bibles don't tell you is Abraham was also a coward. Abraham prostituted his wife out on three different occasions to save his own skin. He would go into a territory and they'd say, is this your wife? He'd go, no, no, it's my sister. Please take her into your harem. None of us would consider that respectable behavior, I think. And yet, what we see here in verse 5 is how Sarah looks at her husband. It says, for this is how the holy woman who hoped in God, not hoping in their husband, but hoped in God, used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husband. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, lowercase l, okay? And you are her children if you... Do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. This passage says Sarah called her husband Lord. And it's referring to a particular passage in Genesis 18. And in that passage in Genesis, Sarah is not going around saying, My Lord, how can I iron your pants? My Lord, how can I clean your shoes? My Lord, how would you like your eggs? That's not the context of what's happening in that passage. In that passage, she's acknowledging Abraham as Lord of the manor, okay, lowercase l, that he is the authority in the household. And what's so amazing about this is that she does it under her breath. She doesn't even do it for Abraham's ears. He doesn't hear it, which tells us that this was not just something that she did in her conduct or in her words, but this submission, this respect for her husband was in the depth of her heart. And so what Peter is driving at is that submission is a matter of respect. And it's a matter of the heart. Not just respecting your husband in your words, which are important, or in your actions, which are important, but in the depth of your heart. Let me give you a practical story of how this plays out, of what submission is not and what submission is. One of my favorite preachers is a guy named Tim Keller. And he was entertaining a position in New York City to become a pastor there. And he and his wife went and visited on several occasions. And they met the people and they started to learn the culture. And they heard the challenges and and the upside and all of those things. And as he and his wife talked about it and prayed about it, they ended up on very different sides. Tim wanted to go to New York. His wife did not. And so after months of discussing this and thinking through it and praying through it together, his wife finally said, Tim, just make a decision. Just make a decision. God has called you to be the leader of our house. Make a decision and let's go with it. Thankfully for my benefit and many of yours, he decided to go and pastor a church in New York City, which has really changed the American church as a whole. But what you see in his wife, Kathy, is she understood that her job, her calling as a wife is to challenge her husband vocalize to her husband, encourage her husband, but ultimately to submit to her husband. You see, one person has to make the decision. Not two, two people can't drive a car. And she understood that God had given that authority to him. And so when he chose to go to New York, she did not go dragging her feet, waiting for something to mess up so she could say, look, I told you so. But she jumped in with both feet, supporting the ministry, supporting the calling that God had put on their life. You see, submission is not for weak. It is for the meek, for those who, like Sarah and like Kathy, did not 
feared their vulnerable position and grasped for power, but hoped in God. Now, one final point on this topic of submission that is so very important, then we'll move on, is that submission is the way of the gospel. Do you remember the big misunderstanding of the Jews when Jesus came? The Jews thought the Messiah, the Christ, would be this political Messiah, that he would establish his kingdom through dominance, through the sword, through politics, through armies, through military. But that's not how the kingdom of God was established. The kingdom of God was established through submission. This is demonstrated in Luke chapter 22. We read that Jesus withdrew from the disciples about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. The cup that Jesus is talking about is the cup of God's wrath. And Jesus is saying, I don't want this cup. Nobody wants this cup. But his prayer continues and he says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. You see, Jesus did not want to drink the cup of God's vengeance, but what he wanted even more was to submit to the will of the Father. And God responds in an amazing way. In the very next verse, it says, And there appeared to him, to Jesus, an angel from heaven, strengthening him. God gave Jesus an angel to give him the strength to submit to the Father. God gives us the Holy Spirit to submit to the authorities that God has put in our life. It is not easy to submit. It is one of the most challenging things we will do. But it is the way of the gospel. Jesus Christ submitted to his heavenly father. He submitted to wicked men, not noble men, but rebellious men who falsely accused him, tore his robe off, beat him for wicked, and he did this all in submission to the Father for wicked men and women like you and me, that we could have a relationship with our ultimate authority, who is God. And so submission is something God views as precious and beautiful, and it is the way of the kingdom of God. Not only are wives called to submit, but they are also called to adorn. Look in verse 3 with me. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. This word adorn can also be translated to decorate. And that's exactly what women were doing. They were decorating their bodies in such a way as to gain the attention of men. You know, there is a big difference, and this is important. There is a big difference between dressing beautifully and dressing seductively. And what Peter is addressing here is not beautiful dress. He's addressing seductive dress. This is the way that women would seduce other men in that culture. This is how they would, they would bring them to themselves. And so what Peter is saying is that you should not dress seductively, but it is fine to dress beautifully. Now, this biblical principle still applies today. The cultural context is different. Maybe what is seductive then is not seductive now. I don't think that gold jewelry or braided hair is as seductive now as it was then. But there are seductive things that we do today. Maybe a low-cut blouse or a high-cut skirt. Maybe you dress seductively through skimpy bathing suits or skin-tight clothing, whatever it might be. I'm not here with a ruler to measure how long your dress is. This is something that is supposed to be in the heart of women that you would consider dressing for the Lord, dressing for your brother in Christ out of love for him, not dressing to gain his attention, to gain power over him or to lure him in. And so Peter tells her to not dress in a way to adorn herself outwardly, 
because there is a more glorious adornment that the Lord cherishes. It continues, verse 4. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Outer beauty will fade away, but inward beauty of the hidden person of the heart can grow more beautiful day by day. And Peter says to do this, it should be with a gentle and quiet spirit. Now, this does not mean that a woman cannot be an extrovert. It doesn't mean she can't be the life of the party or be fun or be playful or any of those things. It's in the context of marriage. And that when things don't go the way that the wife would choose, that she doesn't go postal, (laughs) that she doesn't go nuclear, that she doesn't flip out, right? But she's submitting with a gentle and quiet and tranquil spirit. Now, this is inward adornment, adornment, which God views as precious. And it's not cultivated by eyeshadow or skirts. It's cultivated by a relationship with the Lord. You know, when I was in college, I formulated this kind of top 10 list of what I was looking for in a wife. And I can't remember what they were, but I do remember at the top of the list was a woman who didn't have to marry me. I know that sounds strange, but what I was looking for was a woman who would not make me her foundation, who would not make me her savior. You see, so many women that I dated had to make our relationship work. Like all of their eggs were in this one basket. We had to get married. And if it didn't get married, then everything was wrong. And so when I met Trish, one of the things I most appreciated about her is I knew that if we broke up, she would be sad, but she wouldn't be crushed because she loved Jesus more than she loved me. And that's what made her so absolutely beautiful to me. And that what, that's what makes her continually beautiful to me. You know, I can say without reservation that I find my wife more inwardly and because of that outwardly attractive today than I ever have in my entire life. Because of the inward adornment, not the outward adornment. And this is what God is calling us to cherish as he cherishes. And so if you are here today, and you are a single man looking for a wife, I would encourage you to search for buried treasure. You know, it is so easy to see if someone is physically beautiful, but it is so hard to see if they're spiritually beautiful. It takes time. You need to see them when they're grumpy, when they're ugly, when things aren't going well. You need to see the rock and the foundation that they stand upon. And if you're here today and you're a woman listening to this, I encourage you to cultivate the inner beauty of your soul. Whether you're 30, 40, or 50, the most beautiful you can yet be ahead if you cherish Christ and pursue Christ and love Christ above all else. God says that it is so precious in his sight, this inward adornment, this inward beauty, and is what wives are called to pursue. Now, let's transition to the holy calling of a husband. Now, if you notice, Peter spends six verses addressing wives, and he spends one verse addressing husbands. And it may seem a little strange, right? (laughs) Like, even maybe sexist. But Peter is in this big sermon about submission. 
And so he spends the most time talking to the wives because that is the role that God has called them to. He calls submission in this big circle with uh, government authorities, a little bit smaller circle in the workplace, and then very intimate circle of marriage. And so the fact that Peter even mentions husbands at all should grab our attention. It should warn us that Peter wants to not just give this command to wives in isolation, but husbands also need to understand their own calling in marriage. And there are some very important and valuable things in this passage to show us how to live in a Christ-like manner towards our wife. First, Peter calls us to understand. Verse 7, he says, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Now, husbands, we have a lot yet to understand. Amen? I mean, we have a lot yet to know, a lot of things yet to figure out. And what we see here is one of the things we need to understand is our wife. We need to understand our wife's desires, her goals, her frustrations. We need to understand her strengths, her weaknesses. We need to understand her joys and her disappointments. We need to understand her to love her well. You know, it's taken me a long time, but in marriage, one of the things I've discovered about my wife is that we can't move large furniture together. When we try to move large furniture, one of us ends up crying. It's not me. But I did also discover that she loves raking leaves and shoveling snow, which I am so happy to encourage her towards those gifts in her life. I've learned that to love my wife well is not to bring her flowers, but to bring her a gift certificate to go buy flowers that she can plant in the ground at a nursery. I've learned by studying my wife that a good date night does not include Fleet Farm, but it does include coffee in a thrift store. You see, we are called to study our wives, to understand our wives, to love our wives. We are on this never-ending journey to understand the depth of the beauty of our wife. And it is a glorious thing that we get to do, to continue to discover who they are. This means when, you, when they're talking to you, you actually listen. You don't just go fix it, Right? But you sit and you listen and you understand who they are so that you can love them according to who God made them to be. And so we need to understand our wives, but we also need to understand our holy calling as husbands. Ephesians 5.25 talks about this saying, Husbands, love your wives. Sounds easy. As Christ loved the church. Uh-oh. <laughs> How did Christ love the church? He gave himself up for her. How did Christ love the church? He died for her. Husbands, you are called to die for your wives. Maybe physically, but even more so in your agendas. You know, not only are you called to die for your wife, you're called to live for your wife, which is in some ways is even harder. It may mean that you say, you know what? I'm not going deer hunting this year. My wife needs me at home. It may mean, you know what? I'm not going out with the guys tonight. My wife has four little kids at home that are very needy. She could use a break. We're called to love our wives as Christ loved us sacrificially. Now, again, you may be saying, Peter didn't know my wife. My wife is often difficult. She doesn't respect me. She doesn't submit to me. But we are not called to love as other people are loved. We are called to love as Christ loved. And Christ loved us, not when we were lovely, 
But when we were unsubmissive, when we were rebellious, when we were our ugliest, Christ died for us. And so in some ways we get to be the husbands God has called us to be in the most glorious ways when our wives are not at her most glorious moments. And so God calls us to love our wives sacrificially and unconditionally as Christ has loved us. Secondly, Peter says we are to honor our wives. Verse 7 again, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the women as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. As we read verse 7, the phrase that jumps off the page at us is this phrase, weaker vessel, because again, it seems so mean. <laughs> it seems so controversial. But Peter is not talking about women as weaker vessels emotionally or mentally or in their capabilities or spiritually. He's talking about their physical demeanor. That women normally, not always, are weaker than their husband, right? Ronda Rousey is the exception. But in most cases, the man is the one who carries the heavy luggage. The man is the one who pushes the car while the wife steers. The man is the one who opens the pickle jars, typically, right? Not always, but typically, and what he is talking about here is he says, your wife has, is in a very vulnerable position for two reasons. One is because your wife physically cannot beat you up. But secondly, because your wife, if she is following her calling as a godly woman, is submitting to you and has put herself in a very vulnerable position. And so you are called to honor her. And this word honor is used elsewhere to talk about how Jesus is precious to God. It's the same word precious honor. And so God is telling us to honor our wives. We must count her as the precious gift that God has given to us. And we must love her well. You know, chivalry is dead, but it doesn't have to be. We can honor our wives, love our wives, cherish our wives. And this is not to be a reaction from husbands. This is to be a decision to honor your wife, to cherish your wife, to delight in your wife, no matter how she acts, no matter what she does. It is supposed to be unconditional and sacrificial. And this is so important to God that verse 7 ends saying, so that your prayers may not be hindered. I think what God is saying in this passage is, if you are not willing to sacrificially love your wife, understand your wife, honor your wife, cherish your wife. Don't come to me to ask me to do the same. Go do that with your wife first and then come and make your requests before me. And so God is telling husbands to go and love their wives as Christ loved the church, understanding them, honoring them as precious and laying down their own life for them. Let me end with this. Sorry, it's a long sermon. There's a lot to get through. <clears throat> You know, during this sermon, I know that maybe there is some rib jabbing. Anyone doing rib jabbing? You don't have to raise your hand, but maybe physically, maybe in your head, like, boy, I hope she's listening. I hope he's listening. They could really use this. But if that's where our heads are at, we have completely missed the message of First Peter. Because this is not about what your spouse can do for you. It's about what you can do for your spouse. It's about how you can love your spouse better, regardless of how they act. You see, our marriage is to be a picture of the gospel 
of Jesus Christ. As a wife reflects Christ through her submission and adorning and loving of Christ. And husbands reflect, the hus- reflect Christ through their sacrificial, unconditional love of their wife. Husbands and wives are equally precious to God. But they are called to distinct roles in marriage. I've shared this illustration before, but I think it so perfectly fits with the picture of what God would see marriage to be. It's a, it's, it comes from a website talking about dance. It's not a Christian website, just about dancing and how you dance well and all of these things. And I want to read to you a portion from it. And I, as you listen to it, I want you to hear how much dancing is like marriage and how God describes marriage, okay? The title is called The Secret to Dance Partnering. And it says this, The most difficult thing to master in ballroom dance, salsa, tango, swing, Latin, or any other kind of partner dancing is not the steps. It's the interaction with your partner. Lead and follow. It's the secret to getting two partners dancing smoothly together. It's simply impossible for two people dancing in close contact to move as one if they're making their own decisions, choosing their own timing, and doing their steps independently. They must coordinate their moves perfectly. And for that to happen, one person must be in charge. Mastering, lead, and follow well takes time and effort. It's easy if you have a regular partner because you can learn the right give and take together. Male beginners are often timid about taking control, especially if they're not 100% sure of the steps themselves. Unfortunately, that means female beginners give up trying to follow and start dancing their own steps so the men aren't forced to learn to lead and it becomes a vicious cycle. At the other extreme, some men think leading means shoving. That another difficult skill for the lead, learning how much pressure is enough and how much is too much. Marriage is a gospel dance. Sometimes it is messy. Sometimes we step on each other's toes. Sometimes our head bonks. But nonetheless, it is a gospel dance of two lives surrendering to one another. You know, there's this radio commercial on for jewelry. And his tagline says, you fell in love on accident, but you stayed in love on purpose. Falling in love is so easy. Staying in love takes hard work. Staying in love takes the grace of God. We must not simply preach the gospel with our lips. We must preach it with our marriage. And we must preach the true gospel, a gospel of unconditional, sacrificial love. Let's pray. Lord, as we take your word today and we think about how to apply it to our own lives, God, help us, Lord, not to apply it to our spouse, but to apply it to us, to see how we can change how we can be more like Christ towards our spouse and preach the gospel to the world through our marriage. Lord, we fall, we fall so short so many times. And so we thank you for your forgiveness and God, we pray for your grace to lead us and guide us in this very beautiful yet confusing and sometimes hurtful gospel dance. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.